My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in that grace. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. How are you doing today? Hey, it's great to see you. My name is Billy, and I'm a cool situation, guys, because uh, every weekend I get to be a part of a huge group of people who come to Cornerstone and faithfully serve and give and are in front of the scenes or in behind the scenes, and the whole goal is to make this place special for each person that walks in the door, and if you're brand new with us, we hope you get a sense of that today because uh, a lot of people are pouring a lot of love into Cornerstone to, uh, to help each one of us take our next step with Jesus, and so... Uh, yeah, it's great to be a part of that entire group, entire just wave, and so uh, glad you're here today. Now, we are working our way through this stunning New Testament letter. How many of you guys have enjoyed our process through First Peter so far? Obviously written by Peter, the apostle, who was a close associate of Jesus. He was kind of you know, on the inner circle. He's this famous figure of Christianity, and we're, and we're learning a lot about uh, his life. This letter was written originally to a group of Christians in what we now have as modern-day Turkey, and they were really struggling. They were being persecuted, and they had a lot of questions that were arising from this, and so Peter's writing this letter to try to give them some guidance and to frame their reality a little bit, and so uh, that's the context. Now, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter. We're going to be reading starting in chapter 1, verse 22, and we're going to edge into the second chapter just a little bit. And in this section of text, if you're taking notes or you just kind of want to, hey, where are we headed today? Peter has a lot to tell us about this thing called growing spiritually. So that's our focus today. And, uh, and, and, and what he's doing, though, is giving us very practical just how-tos on what this looks like. So this isn't like ivory tower theology. This has like handles on it. Uh, this is like stuff that you can actually start kind of executing and implementing in your life today as you walk out of the auditoriums. And so that's why I'm excited about our message. And um, now when we talk about growing spiritually, you're gonna hear different terms of how this is described. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the term spiritual growth if you're in a church environment, that, that may be the term, or kind of an old school theological term is sanctification. Uh, that's another way to describe this common experience of uh, growing. Now what we say around here, and actually I just said this, the way we phrase it at Cornerstone is we say it this way. We're taking a next step with Jesus. So if you hang around Cornerstone enough, you're gonna hear this time and time again. And what this means is really simple. It just means that everybody has a next step. Okay, so, so what that's, that's like really flexible. There's a lot of like, okay, situational uh, elements to this. So, so maybe you're spiritually curious. You're not a Christian yet. You're just kind of checking things out. Guess what? You have a next step. And maybe you're on the sort of opposite end of the spectrum. You've been coming to church for decades. You have a next step too. And what happens is when we take that next step with Jesus, that's called spiritual growth. That's called spiritual growth. And that's something that Peter is gonna help us do. So let's go ahead now and read. Let's dive in. So I'm sure you're there by now. Verse 22, here's what Peter tells us. He says, now that you have purified yourselves 
by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another. He says, love one another deeply from the heart. So now that you've purified yourselves, you've banged the truth, you have this sincere love, now love one another deeply from the heart. Now let's just pause for a second. What's, what's he saying? It's a little confusing here. Let's, uh, let me just uh, metaphor this up a bit. So you have, God made you with words in your heart. And, and, and then God's like, now go be an author. Go write that book. Or maybe God's put swimming inside of you. Now go Michael Phelps that thing, okay? Go Michael Phelps, go. So what this means is God, in this case, it's not a gift, it's just an attribute of what it means to follow Christ. So God's put love in all of our hearts. And he's saying, now, now go, go express that love, go walk in that love, go show that love. And so that's what it means here in that first sentence. Let's go on to verse 23. He says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For, and now we have a quotation, now Peter's quoting the prophet Isaiah. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this was the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. All this toxic stuff, guys. Get rid of this. Leave that behind. That's your old life. Like newborn babies, verse two, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Look at this, uh, look, look back at verse two of chapter two. Let's read this again. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You see that little phrase? Grow up. Repeat that after me. Grow up. Okay, come on, a little more mojo. Come on, it's, it's your awakening. I know, I know, yeah? Have you ever said that term to somebody or at least thought it? Anybody? It's like, you know, maybe you're reading somebody's Facebook post. It's like, okay, it's eighth grade for you. I think it's time to grow up, right? And a lot of times when we use that phrase, it is kind of more in an insult. But in this case, Peter's not being insulting to the church. Like I said, they're going through some pretty tough stuff. And he's like, gang, I love you dearly. But listen, you're spiritual babies. And my heart for you is for you to grow, to grow up. And so he's not being insulting. He's being honest. And when it comes to spiritual growth, we need a lot of honesty, right? To, to properly self-assess where we really are. And so for some of us, we think that we're actually very spiritually mature, but we're actually not. We're spiritual babies. And, and, and we can think that because, well, I took a Bible class like 10 years ago. I, I know a couple theology terms. And, you know, well, one time I read my Bible like four years ago and I kind of understood it. Or, I don't know, you've just been coming to church for a long time. And so a lot of times that gets equated with spiritual maturity. And really what Peter is saying is that has very little to do with it. And then on the flip side, there's a lot of people who actually think that they're not very spiritually mature at all. And yet when, they, when you look at their life and you kind of look back behind the curtain, you just see, oh my goodness, you're really acting like Jesus. And so you're near, not nearly as loserly as you think you are. And so what we need then is an accurate sort of framework or a grid to determine what exactly goes into spiritual maturity. Now, a couple things about this we can derive from Peter's honesty. First of all, he's telling us that Christian maturity is a developmental process. 
It's a developmental process that is comprised of different stages. So he mentions the baby stage here. Okay, that's a stage of spiritual maturity. Now, other New Testament writers pick up on the same concept, uh, and they talk about this at length. In fact, the Apostle John, in one of his letters, he talks about maturity in stages too. Now, in his vernacular, he mentions childhood, the childhood stage. And then John says, uh, beyond that, okay, there's childhood, and then there's young adulthood spiritually. So you're, you're, uh, you're beyond being a tween, and maybe you're in your sort of middle 20s, as it were, in your spiritual life. And then he describes this thing called fatherhood and motherhood spiritually. And this is for folks who've been seasoned, and man, they're leaders, and, and they're really fathering and mothering. And so he's doing also some metaphorical work here. And so Peter, John, and the other New Testament writers then, when you cross-reference all this material, they teach us that Christianity is indeed a developmental process comprised of stages of maturation that are analogous to the biological development of a human being. And so that becomes then our visual image for what spiritual maturity is like. The Christian life, as taught by the apostles, is a process, it's a path, it's a journey, you know, it's an adventure. It's not static, it's not frozen, it's not stuck in just kind of uh, suspended animation, as it were. It's, it's really, it, it is an adventure, which is why in some of our branding for this series, you're going to see like people getting together and, and going on a hike in some of the, the videos and the images, and that's taken and derived from uh, what we are reading here today. And so that's the first thing he tells us about maturity. Secondly, he tells us that he's giving us really an entirely new category of human development, especially when we talk about uh, human development or child development in secular circles. We, we kind of go through a similar thought process. But, but Peter says, you know all about biological maturity, but let me give you a new category. This is spiritual maturity. That's, that's how this works. And this, guys, would have been a radical a very radical notion for the original hearers of this, of this letter. Because most of the, the recipients were from the Roman Empire. So you just kind of had your everyday run-of-the-mill Romans who were becoming Christians. And so uh, this, was, this was pretty revolutionary because for your average Roman who was a temple worshiper, you know, you kind of went to whatever temple was in your village or town, and if you were in a big town, you had a variety to choose from. But what, what this was, was it was very transactional. And so you would go to like your local god or goddess and you would offer up a sacrifice, whatever that god or goddess preferred. You'd kind of figure that out. And then what you would do after you did this was demand some sort of payment from the god. And so, okay, hey, Neptune, uh, I'm gonna offer and sacrifice this to you, but then this week what you're gonna do for me is give me a, a, a fruitful fishing trip, a safe fishing trip on the ocean. And so what this was, was religious deal-making. It was very transactional for the ancient Romans. And there was no process. It was very static. It's, there's no development here. Do you see that? And you know, here's the thing, though, is that transactional religion is actually what a lot of people, how they view religion today. You know, if I do this, then God will do this for me. It's very sort of formulaic. And uh, Peter's like, no, 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 that's not what it is. And so this was like blowing people's minds that it didn't work this way as they understood and came to uh, mature as believers. And so Peter is saying there is a process. It's not static. This is a new category. And then he says, just because you're proficient in one area doesn't mean that you're going to be automatically spiritually mature. 
Okay, you guys, have you ever met somebody that's like, who's, I don't know, for example, they kill it at work. I mean, they're really proficient. They're very mature. They've built a book of business. And then when you look at their personal life, it's just a total train wreck, right? It's like, man, you're a terrible husband. You're a terrible father. You kill it over here. But boy, uh, you know, here, here you're, 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 you're less than a tweenager. Anybody know anybody like that? Will you guys respond to me just a little bit? <laughs> Thank you. Well, Peter is picking up on that, right? This concept, and he's saying that's the same thing here. So you may be a big deal at your job, but when you approach Christ, you're not such a big deal. In fact, you're not a little deal, nor are you a deal at all. You're a noob. You're a noob. You're a total noob. And that actually can be humbling. You guys know that term? That's kind of a geek term, a nerd term, noob. You're spiritual, you're in a new initiate. You're starting off at square one. That's very humbling, especially for some of us who come to Christ as an adult where we are established in something and then we come here and it's just like, wow, I'm really like, I don't know what, what's really going on here. But Peter says that's the normative dynamic for the Christian life, that's okay. We all have to start out at square one. And so that's, uh, that's the contours of, of spiritual maturity. Now, I want to talk to you. Now, let's just dive into this passage a little bit now and, and pick it apart uh, somewhat. So Peter connects maturity to salvation. Now, this is key. This phrase, we read this. It's back in verse 2. It says, he says, grow up. But he says, grow up in your salvation. Did you notice this little phrase? So he's doing is he's linking the Christian maturity process to our initial salvation, and he's doing that. Why? It's because this, this, both of these things, salvation and maturity, are saturated with grace and with, with the work of Jesus. So what he's saying is your salvation is, is by grace, but once you get into the kingdom, your maturity isn't just purely by the strength of your will. That's not how this works. It doesn't just automatically switch to a different system. You know, um, the reformers 500 years ago uh, really fought for this idea. Now, if you don't know much about Christian history, we're coming up, guys, on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, there was a, a, a German guy named Martin Luther who, who did something radical. He began to sort of start an avalanche of of protest against the Catholic Church when he nailed to the door of his church in his town of Wittenberg, this was called the 95 Theses, which were 95 points of critique of the Catholic Church. And in this, man, God just exploded this, and, and we had some massive, massive reformations, and it started what? what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. We're still living off that. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary of that, so that's on Halloween. So I think it would be hilarious if you guys dressed up like, like monks, right? And you went around and you, had, you shaved the top, the guys shaved the top of your head because they had the thing, I don't know, it was this awesome haircut and, uh, and the kind of the sackcloth robe with the rope and you could be Martin Luther and you could say instead of trick or treat, happy Reformation Day. Um, and oh my goodness, how relevant is that, right? So now, anyways, what these guys were fighting for was that salvation was by faith alone. It wasn't by works or, or paying money or doing a bunch of stuff to curry up the favor of God. But then they took it further. They said, so is sanctification. Your sanctification, yes, is a partnership with the Holy Spirit, but it is also by faith alone. 
And so what this means is, let me say it this way, your sanctification and your justification need to have regular long-standing coffee meetings with each other. Otherwise, this all just becomes an exercise in try harder. And we don't need another try harder system, do we? Just try harder, man. Just do better. Just suck it up. Just white knuckle it. That's essentially what we have in most religious uh, I, I, uh, approaches, philosophical approaches when it comes to moral imperatives. It's just do better. Get more discipline. Try harder. Don't be such a slacker. And, and Christianity then comes in with a completely different approach that says, oh my goodness, this whole moral imperative becoming more like Jesus process is, is faith-powered, it's grace-powered, and it's really, it's like you're, 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 you have a canoe, and you're in a canoe, and you're on the side of the, of the sort of moored to the side of the stream, and then you just kind of let loose, and you paddle to the middle of the river, and then the current begins to take you while you paddle. You see that? You see the, 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 the idea that it's not just by the strength of our, our own um, discipline. So I have to engage in it if I'm going to grow. And I have to stay then at the same time tightly connected to grace. Some of us have started our walk with Christ and we have been staying in baby stage for far too long. Babies. Oh my goodness. Your spiritual babies. And so what Peter is saying is like, okay, let's move forward out of this baby stage. So then the question is, well, how do I do that? What does that look like? For maturing Christians, what are the attributes in their life that we can say, okay, this is a common thing, and so I should have this thing in my life. Let's, let's read, because Peter does tell us. Thankfully, check out verse 22 again. Look back down, or you can see it on the screen here. Again, the first sentence, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have this sincere love for each other, then, then out of that, then love one another deeply from the heart. And so this little uh, sort of uh, clause here, this, this dependent clause in the sentence, love one another deeply, that's where I want to zero in on, particularly this word here, deeply. Now, I totally geeked out on this word this week. I mean, have you ever had one of those times at work where you just kind of, you know you're onto something and you're at your computer and then you're just going for it and then it's like two hours later, you know, and you just wow, where'd the time go? Anybody? 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 Okay, yeah, right, good, thank you. <laughs> this is so interesting. Okay, what, this is uh, originally written in, in ancient Greek. So here's what it looks like in Greek. This, this is what it looks like. And next slide. And here we go. Okay. All right, here's what it looks like. And, and how you say that, this is the phonetic spelling. So this says ectenos. Or ectenos. We're not going to say it that way. We're going to say ectenos. So this is, such a, this is such a fascinating word. Now this is like a range of translations to it when it comes to aligning with English. So you can translate it earnestly or, or super sincerely or strenuously. But really what it means literally is it means to stretch out. Okay? To stretch out. So which comes from athletics, right? So, so you, you got to stretch, right? Before you exercise. You got to do this kind of stuff, right? And, uh, and that's good. Why? Because when you're 44 and you're past your prime, if you don't stretch, you know what happens? You pop a calf muscle. And so it's important to stretch, okay? <laughs> you got to stretch. <laughs> you got to really get it. Now, it's not just preventative. 
<laughs> Always have a cute puppy in your sermon if you can, okay? You gotta stretch, it's not just preventative. Actually, when you stretch, it helps accelerate your muscle building. It kind of stretches the fibers of your muscle and it helps, uh, you can get there faster. Now, now, speaking of Michael Phelps, okay? Speaking of Michael, this guy is crazy flexible. Have you seen this? Check this out. Okay, this is, he's got this back stretch, this slap stretch thing. What he does, did you guys ever see this in the Olympics, right? Look at this, look at this. He's almost completely touching his fingers. So let's try this. Let's try this. Okay. I mean, look at this. I am just like him. I'm like, you can see it, right? Let me freeze it. Look at this. I am almost, I mean, it is super close how flexible Michael and I are. And, um, and, so, and so what this is, it's amazing, right? He's so ridiculously fast in the water. And a lot of it is because he's so flexible. And he didn't just get like this like the first time he did it, right? He had to build towards this and incrementally take steps in his flexibility to become just the freakishly awesome athlete he is. So these words and images then give us a better idea of what love looks like. You see, what, what's so interesting about ectonos is that it only th- shows up three times in the New Testament. And one is here that we just read. But Peter, and Peter wrote this, but Peter's involved in the other two instances in some way. And, um, and so you get this idea that Peter knows what he's writing about here. Now, one of those instances in, is in Acts chapter 12. And, and you can turn there if you want. Um, I'm just going to kind of narrate it a little bit. But in Acts chapter 12, Peter was on the receiving end of ectonos. So what was going on was the Jerusalem church at this point in the timeline, this is after Christ had been resurrected and ascended and the church was growing. It was some years after the ascension and it was just, just explosive growth. And this growth was getting the attention of the Roman leadership as well as the Jewish leadership and they didn't like it at all. And so this guy named King Herod, who was a king, but he was really like a puppet king. He was kind of underneath the thumb of the Caesar. He kind of wanted to be Caesar. He was friends with Caesar. He was like buddies with Mark Antony, and he kind of lived in this weird little circle of of family with them, and he wasn't really all the way Jewish, but he was just enough Jewish that Caesar thought if he put him in, then that would be the Jewish kind of legal representative or whatever, and it would keep all the Jewish folks happy, and even though they were being oppressed by the Romans, whatever. You guys know some of this, but, but, but King Herod had seen the spread of Christianity, and he didn't like it, and so what Luke says in Acts chapter 12 is he says that, that Herod basically came up with a plan to persecute the church And so he has one of the apostles captured and killed, James. He runs James through the sword and kills him. And there was a lot of applause to that. And that was like, oh, okay, good. I'm gonna just do more of this now. And so then he has his soldiers capture Peter. And Peter was thrown into prison and he was chained to a wall. And then there were 16 Roman soldiers assigned to guard him while he was chained to the wall. And furthermore, two of those 16 were on either side of him chained to Peter who was chained to the wall. So this basically was like top level security. And what was happening is Peter was awaiting his fake trial and then his subsequent very real execution. And the church was aware of all of this because this didn't happen in private. And while he was in prison, the church was meeting in their, uh, in their community groups, basically. 
in their, in their homes. And they were doing it in secret. And it, this is what it says they were doing. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That's ectonos. They were like, you get this, this idea, like they were just stretching out in prayer for him. He, 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 they, they, knew, they knew where Peter was. He was in prison and they couldn't get to him. And so right where they were, they were just like, just straining in prayer and asking God and pleading on Peter's behalf for a miracle that God would do something to intervene miraculously and rescue their friend and their leader. And it's so mind-blowing what happens right after this passage it says the night before his fake trial, after all this ectonos had been going and it was going on as we speak, this angel walks into the jail cell. This angel, straight up angel, just walking in. And it says it just floods the whole room with light. And everybody's still asleep. Peter's still asleep. And so the angel like doesn't say, I feel like he would kick Peter kind of like this. Hey, hey, Pete, wake up. And Peter kind of wakes up. And then the angel just goes, and the chains fall off. Literally, that's, it's, it almost says this. It almost has a sound effect. <laughs> and the two soldiers are still asleep. And it's so funny. It's, it's actually pretty adorable because Peter's just like, uh, I, I probably like any, you and I would be. And so the angel's like, okay, hey, Peter, now, okay, put your sandals on. Lace your little sandals up. Get your clothes Oh, don't forget your cloak. Get your cloak. It's chilly outside. Wrap yourself up. And, and it's like, Peter's just like stunned. And, and it says he's like, he thinks he's in a bit of a dream state. He doesn't really know if this is real. And so then the angel's kind of leading him out of the jail cell. And every time they come to a locked gate, I'm sure this is how it happened. It's just, <laughs> notice how that sounds curiously like a lightsaber, right? Okay. Another gate, another gate, and then they do this until they're completely out of the jail and they're outside in the, in the street and then the angel takes off and Peter wakes up and he's like, oh my goodness, that wasn't a dream. I'm really free. And he's just like so excited. And so he runs to Mark's house. Mark, the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. He runs to Mark's house. He knocks on the door and this kid, this kid answers the door. And this kid is like, oh, Peter, oh my goodness, what are you doing here? And she shuts the door in his face. And she runs into the living room where all the adults are praying for Peter to be released and says, hey guys, uh, Peter's at the door. And they're like, no, he's not. There's no way he's at the door. That's probably his angel or something else, which is like, whoa, what does that mean? But that's another sermon. And, they, and then they hear him and he keeps knocking. And so they're like, they go to the door and it's Peter. And they're like, oh my goodness. And they're screaming and they're shouting. And he's like, shh, you guys, I, I know it's exciting, but we have to keep it down. And, and it was just this awesome, awesome miracle that was predicated entirely on this love that the church was showing him through prayer. A stretching love. A straining love. A strenuous love. An uncomfortable love. Like when you stretch before you exercise. That is not necessarily a good feeling, but this is how it describes they were loving Peter. And the, the, the result was this incredible, freeing miracle. He was loved by his brothers and sisters. And so Peter then knew firsthand what that kind of love did for him. And then he writes in our letter that we just read, guys, guys, this is what it looks like 
when you're growing. This is what it looks like. Okay, so what does that mean, though, for us in our context? East Bay, 2017, 500 years after the Reformation, almost 2,000 years after this. Here's what it means. At some point, loving one another the way Peter describes is going to stretch you and strain you. And it will mean that God will eventually present an opportunity for you to come alongside someone who does not look like you, who is in a different place than you, who is a different age, has no kids, has kids, has been divorced, you're married, you've never been divorced, or vice versa, who's, um, they don't look like you, they're not in the same economic whatever level you are, they're not the same age, they have a different background, they root for different sports teams, and they vote differently than you. But in order to reach them, you're going to need to stretch. This is how you grow up. Someone almost clapped. Oh my goodness. I am so proud of that person. Now, okay, this, this is what I learned. I learned this growing up, okay? This is so hard to believe. But when I was a young Christian, I stretched people around me. I know, I know it's you, Billy? Yes, I was so annoying, okay? There was a lot of more mature Christians around me when I was growing up in my faith. But I required a tremendous amount of time and attention and energy and encouragement and correction and teaching and prayer and counsel. And these more mature Christians had to reach out to me and serve me and love me in ways that I was completely clueless about at the time. Because why? I was a baby, spiritually. I was a newborn. Newborns are exhausting, are they not? I see some of you who have newborns, and you can tell right away. You have dark black circles under your eyes, and you look like a human zombie, and you get it. I get it, right? We've been there with kids. Now, for me, one of the more exhausting things is the questions that I would ask. I had a lot of questions. What's a Pharisee? What's a Sadducee? Why are there two Judases? Why are there only 12 apostles? Why did Jesus not heal this person when he walked through the town? Uh, is Genesis 1 through 3 meant to be read literally? How old is the age of the earth? Did Adam have a belly button? Who did, who, did, who did Cain and Abel marry? Who was Job? Is Job a real person? Is Jonah, is Jonah a real person? When we get to heaven, can I shake Job's hand? Or was that just a metaphor? Is that just an allegory? Is that the same true as, that the same true as, 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 as Jonah? How do you read Ecclesiastes? Why is there four different accounts of the Gospels and not more or not less? How come they're not all synthesized into one? How come there's only 27 books of the Bible? Were there other Bible books that didn't make it into the final canon? I mean, blah, 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 blah. I just had question after question after question after question after question after question. That was exhausting. Here's what the folks around me taught me. They, they answered my questions. Okay. All right. <laughs> But eventually, they taught me how to answer my own questions. And what they were doing was teaching me how to feed myself. You know someone is progressing in their spiritual stages of life is when they can start feeding themselves and they're not just reliant completely on others feeding them for their spiritual food. So that's kind of a cue and a clue for you. If you, if you only get spiritual nourishment when other people feed you, then you are a spiritual baby. Stop being a baby. Why? Why be a baby? Did somebody almost clap or was that just a, somebody dropped a book? 
There's a fundamental difference, guys, in the way that Christians in a community relate to one another, because why? Uh, that's what a maturing Christian looks like. It's when someone, it's, what, it's, it's like you, 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 loving someone else sincerely and deeply means, it means you take what's been poured into you and then you start to give it away on a regular basis. And so we relate to one another when you compare us to other groups of people, especially in secular circles, because our affinity for one another is not based on the commonalities of our politics or our ethnicities or our vocations or other social things. Why? Because our our love for one another is based on something completely and entirely and totally something more permanent, imperishable, like the imperishable seed that Peter mentions. It's the grace of Jesus, our common experience, the common humbling experience of coming to the end of yourself and realizing that you need the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God in buckets and buckets. And that common experience, then we relate to one another on that basis. It transcends all of those other things which are important, but this is at the top of the heap. And then the goal is we help each other grow closer and closer and closer and closer to Jesus because when we do that, we look more like him and that is what Christian maturity is. And so that then becomes the target and the goal of our life. This then gives us some insight into why Peter would say, get rid of malice and deceit and those other toxic things because that erodes the environment that we have to encourage one another to grow and to grow closer with Christ. So we have to work to preserve this dynamic of love by not tearing each other down because how can you help somebody grow if you're running them down all the time? It's very simple, but this is part of our responsibility. So let's put some handles on it, next steps. For some of us, we need to start making the transition from taking into giving out. Make that transition. Pray earnestly. That's a, that's a way you can show this. You can, you can flip. You can start on this other trajectory. Learn, keep learning your scriptures. We're, we're incredibly malnourished in our Bible times. Learn, serve, serve. Sign up for a ministry here at Cornerstone. Start serving somebody. Give. Start giving. Give them your time. Give them your money. We've got a lot of people who eat all the free donuts outside. Make the shift. Start giving. Also, find someone in a different place and stretch out to them. You'll find so many people in different places because a church is, our church is so, the breadth and, and who we're reaching is, it, it transcends all these categories socially. So find somebody and then stop the gossip and the slander and the negativity. Be the place where that dies. Okay, and then the life of Christ flows out. It took several times where others strained and stretched for Peter to get what loving deeply is all about. The final one instance, he saw this in an ultimate sense. The instance of ectonos, this idea of loving others deeply. The last instance is found in Luke 22. And in this scene, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying. He says this. In being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, more ectonously. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is, of course, Jesus praying to his father the night before he was to be betrayed, captured, and sacrificed on the cross for the sin of the world. And he was praying this prayer, if possible, let this cup, let this pass from me. And Peter was there. 
It doesn't say how far away he was, but he was just off to the side as Jesus was praying all night. But he kept falling asleep. And Jesus, it says, would periodically kind of go over and check on him and just be like, hey, Peter. And there's a couple other guys there. Hey, wake up, wake up. This is not the time to sleep. Take your rest later. We got to pray for this. Help me. But it says every time Peter fell asleep again. Doesn't say this, but perhaps Jesus and the angel nudged Peter awake in the same way. It's very similar. But once Peter woke up, okay, he woke up. He realized what true love really looks like. He was never the same again. And so now that he's got it, he's calling us to wake up to what it means as well. First, we have to wake up to the reality of how deeply Jesus loves us. And then how we can go and do likewise. We're going to receive communion this morning together. And so I'd like to start having the host teams come down the aisles and the host team's just immediately going to start distributing the cup and the bread so that the team doesn't have to wait for me. They can just, they can just go. And, uh, we're going to kind of synthesize all of this in communion together. You see, the bread and the cup are symbols. So uh, for those of you who are married, look down at, if you have a wedding ring, look down at your wedding ring. What does this do? This symbolizes something much greater than just a, a piece of precious metal, right? This, this is also, the, I'm married to Christy. So this is not Christy, right? But it points to and symbolizes the love and the commitment that Christy and I share, right? You see that? Communion elements, are, they work the same way. They're small. The bread and the cup, in, in our case, a, a a little piece of cracker and some grape juice, they symbolize something much deeper, something much greater. The love and the commitment that Jesus Christ has towards you and me. And they also remind us of this ultimate act of loving deeply, of stretching out. Jesus on the cross. You know, the cross was this horrific form of Roman execution and in Jesus' case, it literally caused him to be pulled across the horizontal timber with his arms stretched out like this to the point where his body was literally breaking. And then they nailed his hands either here or here in his wrists to the cross, to the timber, to the wood, and he was totally stretched out. And then they did so vertically with, somewhat with his legs, his feet. It was just awful. But the point is, is he was stretched out. Why was Jesus stretched out? Was it just standard execution? Well, Christians would say, no, it wasn't. There was something else happening because Jesus, in his love for us, was stretching out to us on the cross. 
because we were in a different place than him. And we could not get to him. We could never get to the place where Jesus was because it's impossible through our human effort to do so. The distance is too great to be made up with good works and, and moral effort. Because of our sin and our disposition towards saying no to the things of God, it's impossible for us. And so what Jesus did is, 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 is this, I can't stretch to Jesus, so Jesus stretched to me. He reached out and he pulls us in. He strains and he stretches and he's earnest towards us. And so communion then teaches us this. Communion reminds us of this because of the symbolism that we hold in our hands. It takes us to a place. It reminds us of something that's way beyond this little, this little item. And it teaches us that Jesus is reaching out to us we're in prison. We're in prison and we need to be free. He always goes first he initiates and then he calls us to him he makes the first move all we have to do is believe and once we've believed we continue on in this path and we follow this path of ectonos right the stretching but the cool thing is is Jesus is never going to ask us to do something morally that he hasn't fulfilled perfectly himself that's the beauty of the gospel so he shows us the way when it comes to loving one another deeply. And so it's only when we live in this daily reality of this immeasurably powerful, this kind of love, can we ourselves pass this on to others. And so today, as we receive the bread, we're reminded of the broken body of Christ and how stretched out he was for us. So let's receive the cracker now. The bread of, the bread of life the body of Christ. And then of course the cup, which is, it's a red grape, so it reminds us of the blood of Jesus, which in this entire stretching out process, his blood was poured out for us to cover our sins so that we are made new and holy. We're made what the Bible says, what Peter teaches, born again, we have new birth. And so now we receive afresh and we're reminded of Christ's deep love for us as we take in the juice. And so, Lord, we just pray now in the name of Jesus that you would help us, Lord, to grow up, God. Wherever that is, the different places on the continuum, Lord, each one of us has a next step. But God, help us now to be stretched out and love one another and be made uncomfortable as we reach out with your love, just like you did for us, Lord. Just like when we were in prison and we couldn't get out and we were chained to the wall, you said, you know what? There's no way you can get out of this, so I'm gonna go into that cell and I'm gonna pull you out myself. I'm gonna rescue you. God, what an incredible kind of love to know that you're loved so deeply. Oh, Lord, help us now. Go and do likewise. Give us the strength and the grace to be the kind of people that will reach out to others. So, Lord, I love you. We love you. And we thank you for your word. It is food. We've tasted you and you are good. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.